I like cute clothes. I like having stylish outfits and I hate shopping. Armoire makes getting dressed easier. Armoire is a clothing rental membership option. And Janet and I recently have both tried it out. And you guys, it is so much fun. You go to their website, you get to take a little quick style quiz, takes five minutes, and then you get presented a list of beautiful clothing, pictures, wonderful clothes that you can pick out and get delivered to your house for you to try and wear in the comfort of your own home without going out and determine what looks cute, put together outfits without investing a ton of money. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off your first month. That is up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash envoys. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E, dot style slash envoys to get 50% off your first month and never have to worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. You know what kind of boy you don't want to raise, but how do you know you're getting there? Stay tuned. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-host, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net, and I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com. Thanks for being here, and thank you, too, for supporting our sponsors. You know what kind of boy you don't want to raise. You don't want to raise a sexual predator or a mass shooter. You don't want to raise a man who takes advantage of others, unleashes his anger and frustration onto innocent victims, or is so enamored with his own talent, success, or perceived rightful place in society that he doesn't even realize or admit that his behavior is problematic. That, as some of you may know, is the intro to my book, Building Boys. Today's guest uses different, more direct words. In 2021, Melinda Wenner-Moyer, a science journalist and mom of two, published How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, Science-Based Strategies for Better Parenting from Tots to Teens. Melinda is also the author of Is My Kid the Asshole, a popular parenting newsletter. Welcome, Melinda. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. So excited to be here. You get to the heart of things. Nobody wants to raise an asshole. And yet, you know, I've been parenting since 1997. My oldest son was born in 97. And um, you and I, many of our listeners, you know, we were parents during the Me Too movement as that was all coming to light. And we were discussing that last few elections. Mm-hmm. And I think that my point of view is like, that's when it really sort of crystallized. We're like, oh yeah, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to raise non-assholes. Would you agree with that? Yes. In fact, it's funny you mentioned me too in the elections because that those are the exact things that were the impetus for the book. So I had the idea in 2018. It was actually in the midst of the Kavanaugh hearings as well. And I was out to dinner with my husband and, you know, I'd been writing about parenting for a while, but didn't really know if I wanted to write a book or what it would be. And I, I was just out to dinner for, it was actually our anniversary in October of 2018. And I, 
out of the blue, just said, you know, maybe I should write a book called how to raise kids who aren't assholes, <laughs> because isn't that what really, really what we all want, you know, we right. Just, that that's the core of it. That's the core of it. I have to ask you this because so the subtitle of my book is um, raising great guys in a world that misunderstands male. So there's like the implicit promise, you know, this will teach you how to raise great guys and yours, how to raise kids who aren't assholes. I felt um a little, no, not a little, a lot of pressure while writing this. Cause it's like, oh my gosh, like what if they do something extremely stupid and asshole like, and I am just an utter and complete fraud. <laughs> yes. I have often wondered like, when I go to barbecues with my kids or something like, are the parents scrutinizing their behavior and judging me, you know, and saying, Oh, look, her kids really are assholes. I feel like one of the big points, especially that, I mean, I make it multiple times in the book, but really in the introduction, I, I basically make the point that look, kids are supposed to be challenging. Like they, you know, they're kind of supposed to be assholes because I love that. I love <laughs> oh, that. I'm so glad it, I so highlighted glad. it highlighted it. This is funny listeners. I was reading her book about how to raise kids who aren't assholes and highlighting it with a um, yellow highlighter. Well, my dog stole a blue highlighter and in a very asshole manner, chewed on it and got it all over my carpet. But I highlighted that part because you wrote, I think kids sometimes are supposed to act like assholes. Let's talk about that because I think that's a part that we parents are kind of forgetting sometimes. Yes, right. Absolutely. We feel like, and I think society sometimes tells us that the like good parenting means your kids are always obedient and they, you know, they never speak unless spoken to and they just, you know, they're never, they're, they're never um, breaking the rules. And that is so not true. And I mean, for so many reasons. So, I mean, first of all, kids' brains are still developing actually the part of the brain that's responsible for impulse control and for planning that doesn't fully develop until 25 we know. And so, you know, even when kids are sort of trying to hold it together, they, they just like biologically can't, right. It's biological. <laughs> They're going to be difficult sometimes. And also I think we have to recognize that so many skills are learned over time, right? So many of these things that we sometimes as parents think like it's, oh, it's not that hard to sit still at the dinner table or, you know, use a fork <laughs> or whatever it is that we think like, this is easy for us, right? It's really not easy for kids. It takes time for them to learn these skills. It takes practice. So they're going to be making lots and lots of mistakes as they go through childhood. And again, yes, this is just normal. But I think sometimes to us, it feels like some kind of failure, like, oh my gosh, my kid should know better. But yes. I have this experience all the time of like, my kids will do something like, okay, one time my daughter took chocolate into her bed and got chocolate everywhere. And I was, at first I was like, what were you thinking? Like, why did you, you know better than to bring like food into your bed? And, all. and then I was like, wait a minute. Had I actually ever had a conversation with her about whether or not she could bring food into her bed? I don't think I ever have. So why would I assume that she should just like know this, you know? And I realized like, I do that all the time. I have this reaction when my kids do something like, what were you thinking? Why did you think this was okay? And then I realized, well, maybe they really just, I've never talked to them about this. They really didn't have that knowledge. And now is a good time to sort of try to calm down and, and have a conversation about maybe why it's important not to eat chocolate in your bed. So yeah, I think sometimes we just, we have this, these ideas about what kids should be like, and it really just doesn't reflect the reality and the biology. Parenting is so humbling like that. There are so many things in the course of parenting 
that I have found myself saying, like having to explicitly say something like, no, you can't or shouldn't eat a chocolate bar in bed. I can't think of specific examples right now, but like, as you're saying it, you're like, wow, I did not think this was something I had to say, but clearly I do because your point is perfect. Kids don't know the things that we haven't told them. They haven't been on this earth as long. And then the really uh, more difficult part of that to absorb is even when you say it one time, that does not mean that they get it and they therefore do it all perfectly and wonderfully henceforth. Exactly. It takes a lot of time and they're going to make the same mistakes over and over again sometimes. And that is all part of the process too. This idea that we sometimes forget that kids like developmentally need to be assholes to turn into adults who mostly aren't. And I said mostly aren't because let's be honest, parents, we all have those moments too. We can talk about our kids developing brains and how they're not quite there yet. And this is why they sometimes behave this way. And that is all true. But so do we when we are tired, when we are stressed, when there's too much going on. So I encourage parents to think about that because you have to give yourself some grace during those moments. And we certainly have to give our kids some grace. Absolutely. I think we have to remember the goal is not perfection because nobody is perfect, right? And I I actually think that's really important for kids to see, you know, to see our imperfections, our vulnerabilities. I think that's really powerful. I think sometimes kids will think that the goal of life is to never make mistakes. And that is really a dangerous idea because nobody does that. Nobody can do that. You know, the the goal is like to make mistakes and then be able to, well, first of all, to be able to handle them, um, to maybe be able to learn from them, um, to, you know, take responsibility for them. And these are all things that by making mistakes ourselves, we can actually model to our kids, you know? So, I mean, I sometimes yell at my kids, I'm exhausted or overworked or whatever it is. And I will yell. And sometimes I actually see that as a kind of opportunity after the fact, because I, I mean, of course I didn't want to yell. It was not intentional. That wasn't your parenting plan strategy. Right. It was not my, my plan or strategy, but then I think, okay, how can I turn this into something that might be useful for my kids? And so I will go over to them and I will model an apology. I will model taking responsibility for my actions. And I will also sometimes use that moment as an opportunity to brainstorm with them, like, you know, what do you think I should have done when I was feeling angry Mm. so that I could calm myself down? Like what were some other things instead of yelling that maybe I could have done to help myself feel better? And they love that. They're like, oh, mom, you should have taken deep breaths or, oh, let me show you how to meditate. I learned how to meditate in school, you know, all these things. And I love, I know that that's amazing, by the way. Um, my, my daughter sometimes will be like, mom, I feel stressed. I'm going to sit down and meditate. And I'm like, she's nine. (laughs) I'm like, wow. I wish I had that at nine. I'm still working on that. Like sometimes I will meditate, but I'm still trying to get to the point where I think to do that in that moment of stress and overwhelm. Right. It's so hard. Yeah. (gasps) Yeah. And I had nothing to do with that with my daughter. It was all school stuff. So, you know, kudos to our school. But yeah, I think sometimes those moments of imperfection are actually, you know, really amazing teaching moments and connection moments sometimes with our kids. And so I think, I think that we have to remember that too. It's, it's, it's okay to make mistakes and sometimes it can actually work in everybody's favor. 
thinking of boys specifically on boys podcast, you know, so many of us, especially who are moms of boys, we really want to get this right. You know, we watched the Kavanaugh hearings. We heard about Harvey Weinstein and enter all the other names of all the other things that you're thinking of. Like, that's what we don't want. We don't want to raise that. And so when we see or hear our son or maybe one of his friends, but especially our son, say something disrespectful to us or sexist or use a racial slur, even if he doesn't know what it means yet, it triggers a lot of stuff in us. And I think sometimes our first inclination is to come down really hard because I will not raise an asshole. Talk about that and, you know, maybe smarter ways of handling that. Yeah, it's so hard, right? Because I agree. It it like triggers something in us and it's, it, we just, we, we're angry, right? And we want to react to it. I mean, ultimately in these moments, what we want to be doing is teaching our kids, right? And we want to, we want to use this as an opportunity for growth. And if we come down really hard, if we're like, how dare you say that? Or that's not okay to say, you know, that angry sort of reaction can cause kids, boys to shut down, right? They, they then go into like defensive mode and, and or shame, right? They feel shame for having said it. And that makes it really hard for them to be able to engage in a conversation and listen and, you know, really like be able to learn from whatever conversation you want to have about it. So, I mean, I try, it's hard, but I try to take a deep breath when I hear my son say something that it feels very terrible and then really start with a question. That's interesting. Like, well, what do you mean by that? Or what makes you say that? And often that's, first of all, it buys you a little time. So you don't have to yeah. be thinking about how am I going to respond to this? You're giving, you know, you're giving, <laughs> giving it a little time and letting them expand on what they meant. Sometimes where they were coming from isn't exactly what we, you know, as bad as we thought. Like sometimes they'll say things and we will just jump to like, oh my gosh, like therefore he, my son is, you know, a terrible sexist or misogynist or racist. But then when they explain what they mean, they, you know, it's more nuanced than that. And so that, that helps because then you can, you know, you can use that information when you're going to figure out how to respond basically. But yeah, I always recommend starting with a question and then really trying to turn it into more of a conversation if you can, um, you know, oh, well, it's interesting that you think that and um, let's, you know, I want to hear a little bit more about that or, you know, it could also be like, well, you know, helping your boy take the perspective of whoever maybe he's talking about, like, oh, well, what do you think they would think about that if they heard you say that, you know, and really, that's a really um, powerful tool, too. We know that the ability to take another person's perspective, which is is called theory of mind, extremely well studied. I mean, we need more studies on everything in child development, but we know that this theory of mind skill, which is like the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, is really important for the development of compassion and empathy and generosity and helpfulness and all these good things. Um, So really trying to sort of encourage that can be helpful. You know, I can give you an example from not too long ago when my son came home from school and he was upset because he'd gotten in trouble on the bus for being too loud. And he was all like, he was like, I, the bus driver was being so mean and he got mad at me for being too loud. And I don't understand, like, why does it matter to him if I'm loud? And he was clearly, he's just trying to make me feel bad and all this stuff. And I was like, Oh boy. Okay. And so first, you know, I, 
I guess, and also in a situation like this, where your child's sort of feeling wronged in some way, it's, or feeling upset, it's good to just validate and show that you're listening like, oh, well, you know, that sounds like you're really, and yet it can be so hard in that moment because we parents, I mean, okay. First of all, if you're an honest parent, you know, full well, your own kid's asshole tendencies, right? So you're like, yeah, you buddy, you probably were being a jerk on the bus (laughs) or you were being too loud, Totally. but but you don't want to say that. And we have this, um, a lot of us, like we're on the side of the other adults, right? Like this is a bus driver. He's trying to get you all home safely. Yes, exactly. Taking that moment is more difficult. And I want to acknowledge that for parents, like this is not probably your instinctual first response here. But when you do, uh, this is when you can get some information and get a dialogue going. Right, right. Now it is really hard. And I always have to pause and take a deep breath and sort of think about, okay, what's, what's the best course of action here for me to really like make this a productive conversation. So, so he'd said all this stuff. And first I said, oh, it sounds like this was pretty upsetting for you. Um, you know, trying to sort of validate a little bit. Um, you don't have to validate in a way that's like, gosh, yes, he sounds like he was being terrible, but you right. say, oh, it sounds like you're upset. You know, it's more like just echoing back what you've heard, which gives yeah. him the opportunity to expand on it. It's not saying, oh yeah, my baby, you're so right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. There's, there's a subtle, but important distinction mm-hmm. there. And then, you know, I said after a minute, I can't remember if I said anything else before this, but I said, okay, you know, let's like, I sort of think about like the bus driver and like what his, what's he like, what was, what was going on there? And what's his job? Like, like why let's think about why he might've said this to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at first my son was like, mm, I don't want to, I don't want to think about that. And I was like, all right, well, let's think about like, you're the, you're driving a bus. Like, what's like, what's your job here? What's the most important thing? And he's like, well, you know, I guess you got to get everybody home and I make sure it's safe, you know? And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's probably a really hard job because like you have all these kids, you know, lives in your hands and you want to be super safe. And what do you think all that noise, like how might that affect the bus driver when he's trying to concentrate on the road? And so we had this conversation of like working through what the bus driver's perspective might be, what the bus driver's goals and priorities and, and challenges are, right? Yeah. And eventually got to this place where my son was like, yeah, okay. I guess I could see how maybe if I'm screaming in the background about, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or whatever, it might be hard for him to focus on the road and and it might make it hard for him to do his job. And, you know, he was a little reluctant, like he didn't really want to admit it at first, but we got there, right? We got there. And I think that those kinds of exercises can be really helpful, both in that moment, but also like sort of planting seeds for the future when your kid is maybe making a choice or doing something and trying to figure out why another person is reacting the way they are, they can sort of jump over and say, okay, well, let me think about this. Like, what is it like to be that person right now? Or what, what could be going on there with them? Right. Kids are naturally innately self-centered. Like they come into the world and it is all about them. And it has to be like an infant. This is how they tell us they are hungry. Like they have to make sure their needs are met. It's all about them. And as they grow, this starts shifting, but it doesn't happen. Boom. I mean, your son on the bus, it's the end of a school day. He wants to have some fun. He wants to let off some steam. That's what his needs are. And of course he can see and sense that without that little bit of coaching and encouragement to think about somebody else in a different position, he might not see that. 
And that's okay. That doesn't mean he's a terrible kid or he will always be inconsiderate of other humans. It means he is growing and he is developing. Exactly. Yes. It is totally normal for kids to struggle with this. And we know from research that like theory of mind develops at different ages in different kids. So there's variation there as well. What do we know um, for approximate age? And of course there's a lot of variation, but. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it definitely starts usually developing in like preschool, late preschool years. It's really funny because researchers who study lying find that kids start to lie more once they develop theory of mind skills and they get better at lying because they can sort of think like, well, what does mom know about, you know, how the vase broke? And can I, can I maybe say that it broke a different way than it really did? And she won't know because her perspective, you know, so they, it's really funny. Um, so it, you'll it often- is funny. You mentioned that because <laughs> years ago I got assigned to write a story about lying and basically lying shows some pretty impressive intellectual and emotional development. And so as a parent, no, you don't love that your kid is lying to you. And yes, you have to deal with that, but there's a lot going on cognitively and it's worth appreciating that these powers can be used for good as well. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Lying is a sign that your kid's brain is developing well and they are developing skills that are really important for good things too. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's funny. Um, But yeah, so you might start seeing, um, so theory of mind skills will start developing like late preschool, but they, they could take, like you could have a kid who's seven or eight who really doesn't have or nine whose theory of mind skills are still developing. And so it's definitely like a continuum and that's totally normal, but we, we do know that doing, you know, engaging in those kinds of exercises where you're helping your kid take another person's perspective Mm -hmm. that can help it along. You know, it just makes it happen maybe a little faster. Patience and forgiveness. How did they play in to raising boys after these messages from our sponsors? I hear from parents all the time, how bath time can be such an ordeal. And yet bath time can be really fun. In fact, here in the very cold winter, we use bath time as an activity. Dabble and Dollop has got this dialed in because they have bath products that are not only natural, healthy, free of toxins, all the things we want for our kids, but they're fun. Jen, you said when your boys were young, they loved to make potions. My son, Tyler, had so much fun mixing things together, making potions, recipes. He would have loved Dabble and Dollop's Day at the Beach bath mixing set because it's a collection of soap scents and a little mixing thing. And your kids can combine scents and make their own creations. It is exactly the kind of thing that can turn bath time into a fun, enjoyable creative endeavor instead of just a fight. And I will say the bubbles have been bow tested in the bathtub and they last. They stay bubbles for a long time. Dabble and Dollop has everything from bath time shampoos, bubble baths, body washes, conditioners, lotions, bath bombs, bath toys and accessories. There's so many things to explore at Dabble and Dollop. Go to dabbleanddollop.com slash onboys to get 20% off your first order. That's dabbleanddollop.com slash onboys, 20% off for being an onboys listener. 
in the intro of your book, you know, you, you talked about this, uh, kids are supposed to act like assholes. And then you also wrote, you're going to have to be patient and you're going to have to be forgiving. And we've touched on that. You know, we touched on that with our kids. It applies to us. You know, we have to be forgiving of, um, we don't always respond like we like. And we talked about that a little bit. And I think that that is still something that we are struggling with in society right now. Cancel culture is like, you make a mistake, boom, you're canceled. And listen, there are times when I think that may be appropriate. Some of these just absolutely horrendous patterns of abusive behavior towards other humans for decades, like, <laughs> you know, we've, you've had chances. But when we're talking about children, that's a different story. And yet sometimes um, that is our reaction. And sometimes, uh, you know, in schools, boys tend to be punished quite harshly. I'm sure you've seen the statistics. Black boys tend to be punished even more harshly than white boys and have, you know, these suspension and expulsion rates. So let's, you know, let's address this a little bit about maybe I worry that uh, collectively we're not giving our kids enough room to make mistakes and to hold them with compassion and optimism that they can grow beyond their mistakes as children. Yeah, I completely agree. I was just reading Middle School Superpowers by Phyllis Fagel, um, and it's amazing. And she talks about this a lot, about how mistakes, like often as, as parents, as educators, we will interpret these mistakes that kids make as evidence that our kids are just terrible people or, you know, they're never going to improve. They're never, they'll never learn. Yep. Um, but that's never really the case, right? They're making these mistakes for other reasons. It could be a lack of skills. It could be that there's a need that's not being met that's causing them to, you know, make a choice that seems really bad to us, but was actually, you know, fulfilling a need in some way, or there's so many reasons. And I completely agree. I think there's often this tendency to, you know, punish and punish harshly. And we know that this really isn't necessarily the best way to respond. I'm not saying there shouldn't be consequences, but there's Absolutely. a difference, right? There's and you, a difference. you even said before, you know, when you hear your son make a comment that, you know, racist or sexist, and you're like, oh, like you don't want to react so angrily or so horrified that you shut it down because that's when they stop talking to us. And you're right. Boys can fall into shame so quickly and it can become very, unhealthy. And yet there's part of us going, well, I do want him to feel a little shame. I do want him to realize that this is affecting other people and I don't want him to feel good about it. It's a line that we can walk. Yes, it's absolutely a line we can walk. And so, yeah, shame is really uh, about feelings about yourself. Like you know, that you feel like a terrible person. We don't want our kids to feel like when they make a mistake that we think they're a terrible person, that there's something wrong with them. You know, right. that is unhelpful. That doesn't get us anywhere, but we can absolutely, and we should help them reflect on the choice that they made and whether maybe that wasn't the best choice and they could make a better choice next time. Those are very different things, right? And that's why I think taking that deep breath and staying calm when our kids make mistakes and really trying to engage with them. I mean, yes, there can be consequences, but not doing it in a really harsh, punitive way mm -hmm. can make all the difference. So I dug into the science of punishments versus 
natural consequences versus logical consequences in a newsletter recently. So natural consequences are, you know, things like if your kid says, oh, I'm not bringing a coat to school today, and then they're freezing at recess and they kind of regret the choice, that's a natural consequence. And it's great. Those are the best. Like, those are great. Yeah. they they learn from their own actions without anybody doing anything. And then logical consequences is like when you are, as a parent, you can create some kind of consequence that really is tied to what they did, you know? So um, it's not arbitrary. It's not like, okay, you used your phone when you shouldn't have, so you can't, you're grounded for two weeks. Like that's kind of an a punishment that's sort of arbitrary. It's like, well, why would using my phone when I'm not supposed to use my phone lead to me being grounded? Instead, it might be, well, you used your phone when you weren't supposed to. So now for the next few nights, I'm going to keep your phone in the evenings just to be sure that you're not using it. And so it's tied to the to the action itself and 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 they can understand it makes sense to them on some level like why there would be this consequence. So would a logical consequence be something like um you know, your kid in the course of whatever, maybe they're angry and they throw something and they, you know, damage the wall or break a door or, you know, these things happen. Logical consequence would be, Hey, you're going to, you're going to fix this with me. Yes. Okay. That's a perfect logical consequence. Yep. Okay. Yeah. It sort of helps sink in, in their brains, why the thing that they did was a problem. So that's a perfect example of like, well, the reason this is a problem that you threw the thing against the wall and left this mark is that now our, mar- you know, our wall is damaged and that we don't want that because this is our house and we take care of our house. And so this, you know, I'm going to be honest listeners. This is not a random example. <laughs> These are things <laughs> that have happened in my life. There was a chair that was damaged because somebody was angry and kicked it and it broke. These things happen. And I share these because I want you to know that just because your son breaks or damages something in anger does not mean that he is destined to become a an adult who never controls his anger and just rampages through the world, hurting other people and other property. Absolutely. That is very, very true. But in, in using those kinds of logical consequences, you're helping to teach values too, right? You're mm. sort of saying like, one of our values is that we don't, we don't damage our house or whatever it is, you know, or, yeah. or it's just, it's not, we don't, you know, it's not great to do that. Maybe, maybe. Well, and our value is that if we harm something that is not ours, or even if it is, but you know, we harm something, we make it right. Exactly. And that's, yes, exactly. That's another value. And so the problem sometimes with these more arbitrary punishments is, you know, they just don't link these things together with the action. It's like when the kids feel like the consequence that they're given is completely distinct and not related at all to the action that they took, then they start to interpret it as like, well, mom and dad are just being mean because it doesn't make sense to them. Right. And then that fuels resentment, which makes it harder for them to learn from what they did. Yes. It's really interesting research. Hmm. Nuanced though. It's tricky. (laughs) That's the thing. Like so much of this is nuanced. And also, you know, parents, you can get this wrong, actually a good amount of time and still raise kids who are decent humans. Yes. This is so important. And this is something I feel like I harp on a lot. Whereas there's this idea that you have to make all the perfect choices as a parent all the time in order to raise a good kid. You know, Parenting gives us infinite opportunities where we're making choices 
that might be great and might not be the best choices. All you need to, you don't, you need to make like a small percentage of them, the right ones, right? You yeah. can make so many mistakes and kids, kids bounce back. They're so resilient. So it's not about getting everything right all the time. It's not about like every time your kid does something, did I use the appropriate, you know, natural right. or logical consequence? If you don't, that's totally fine. It's totally fine. Right. Yep. But if, you know, if every so often you have the wherewithal to be able to think like, oh, maybe this is the best then that's great. And use that. And that can be really powerful, but you don't have to get it right all the time. That's so relieving because it's hard enough just getting through the days sometimes, getting people where they need to be, doing what we have to do. That is plenty, plenty most days. Agreed. You recently, as in this week, as we're recording this, you did a newsletter about male loneliness. Brief pause for these messages, and then we'll be talking about male loneliness. I hear from parents all the time how bath time can be such an ordeal. And yet bath time can be really fun. In fact, here in the very cold winter, we use bath time as an activity. Dabble and Dollop has got this dialed in because they have bath products that are not only natural, healthy, free of toxins, all the things we want for our kids, but they're fun. Jen, you said when your boys were young, they loved to make potions. My son, Tyler, had so much fun mixing things together, making potions, recipes. He would have loved Dabble and Dollop's Day at the Beach bath mixing set because it's a collection of soap scents and a little mixing thing. And your kids can combine scents and make their own creations. It is exactly the kind of thing that can turn bath time into a fun, enjoyable, creative endeavor instead of just a fight. And I will say the bubbles have been bow tested in the bathtub and they last. They stay bubbles for a long time. Dabble and Dollop has everything from bath time shampoos, bubble baths, body washes, conditioners, lotions, bath bombs, bath toys and accessories. There's so many things to explore at Dabble and Dollop. Go to dabbleanddollop.com slash onboys to get 20% off your first order. That's dabbleanddollop.com slash onboys, 20% off for being an onboys listener. You did this newsletter because this is such an important topic. There's recently been studies showing that this is a problem for young men. Um, Two out of three, I believe it was young men, like 18, was it 18 to 23? Yes. You know, said, uh, nobody really knows me, which is startling and scary for me because I've got two kids in that age group. And I'm like, do they feel known? You know, I talked with Michael Reichert about this as you did for your newsletter and part of your impetus for your newsletter, which I will link in the show notes. so You all can um, easily access this. Your son made a comment to you. Um, Talk a little bit about that. So, you know, we know where your concern came from. Right. Yes. Yes. This was the whole reason that I dug into this issue. I was driving my kids to camp recently. So my son is 12 and my daughter is nine and they were talking about friendships. And my daughter was saying, you know, I have, you know, a bunch of sort of decent friends And then a few good friends, I think that I could confide in and tell my secrets to, but only just like one or two. Um, And, you know, that's totally normal and healthy and all that. And then my, my son said, well, I have lots of friends too, but I don't have 
anybody that I would ever tell my secrets to or confide in. And I was just floored when he said that. And, you know, and I kind of, I said, really like you have a good friend. I know you have a good friend because you have sleepovers with him all the time. Like you don't feel like you could talk to him about your feelings or if something bad happened, like you wouldn't feel like you could talk to him about it. And he was like, no, no. And, uh, it was, it made me so sad. It made me so sad. I mean, he did say, well, mom, I would tell you, and I felt really good about that. But then I think, is that going to be true in two or three years? Or if something happens that he really doesn't feel like he can talk to me about, then who, you know, then he might not have anybody. So this really sent me down this rabbit hole of understanding why does this happen? Like, why is it so common for boys to say that they don't have anybody that they can talk to and they don't have any friends that they would really open up to? And, you know, where does it come from and what does it mean and what can we do about it? And that was basically what I covered in the newsletter. You got to give listeners a little bit more than that because they're all one, like they're going to read the newsletter. I know they're going to read it, but, um, you know, we've, we've talked about this before, you know, the little kids generally, like they're just so open to the world. A little kid will run up to a random somebody and they're my best friend and they'll share stuff and they'll play. And there does tend to be this shift and your son is 12. That's Mm -hmm. such a tough age for kids in general, for boys specifically, like you're on that edge and some kids look like they're 25 almost, and some look like they're eight and everything's shifting and changing. What did your research show as to why this may be a special challenge for boys? Yeah. So what the research suggests is, first of all, this is, it's not an innate difference between boys and girls. Boys are born with the same needs and capacities as girls, it's not a gender thing. They do crave connection. So um, Judy Chu, who who was a who was a researcher at Stanford, she did a two year long study where she followed pre K boys through first grade, and you know these boys often this was like the first time they were in a school setting, a group setting where they might be exposed to you know gender really strong. Well, they were probably exposed before this, but but more, more strongly so exposed than you to are like gender yeah, within your family or community. Right. And she found at the beginning of the year, these boys were so loving to each other. They were, you know, physically like touching each other, hugging, like touching each other's hair, sitting almost in each other's laps during reading time. And then there was this shift like halfway through the year where they really started to pull away from each other and sort of have that sort of classic like masculine stoicism that they were showing where they really like it was like they learned through just breathing the air almost around them that, oh, this isn't what boys should do. And she basically said, you know, this is clearly a learned response to the societal expectations for, you know, what it is to be a boy. And then Niobe Way, who's a psychologist at NYU, she's been also studying boys' friendships since 1987, she told me. For a long time. Yeah. And she really looks at what happens in adolescence and she finds there's this further shift that happens often later in adolescence where, you know, boys will sometimes still develop these very strong friendships that go through early adolescence. And then it's like at 13, 14, 15, they really break those off and they, they stop being able to share things with each other. And again, she says, this is really just from 
these very strong gender expectations and stereotypes and pressures that boys feel about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And it's like the irony here is that they're pulling away from their friends in order to be accepted as a boy. It's in order to basically be accepted and be close to their friends, they are pulling away from each other. And it's like, they're, so they're not accomplishing the thing that they want. It's like, they're, they're working against their own interests in some ways. One of the things that I I've seen come up in that age group um, over the last few years, and maybe you've seen or heard this amongst your son or his friends, a fair amount of this, at least here in the United States, it's rooted in homophobia because of this belief that like, you know, if you are close to another male, therefore you must be gay. And that's not as good. And I'm putting air quotes around this. This is not something I believe, but this is, this is kind of the culture that was predominant for a long time and that our boys have been swimming in and trying to survive it. And so one thing that I started hearing boys saying a few years ago, no homo. Have you heard that yet? Yes. Yes. You know, when boys are being close to each other or touching each other, they will say that almost as this proactive declaration that, hey, I'm being close, but it doesn't mean I'm gay, yep. which is problematic in that it reinforces this whole idea that there's something wrong with being gay and yep. that being close is wrong. And yet I have to kind of sort of admire that they found a workaround of like, I can still be close as long as I make this declaration. It's a very like a 13-year-old boy thought this up kind of reasoning. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you that that's, that that's a lot of this. Um, in fact, when I spoke with Niobe Way, she was telling me she talked to a group of 12-year-old boys at one point, and she had them read the beginning of her book, Deep Secrets, I believe it, it was, oh. which the opening has um, the story of a boy talking about his best friend and saying, I love him so much, you know, very strong feelings that he was, you know, sharing about, about how, he, how he feels about his friend. And she had them read this and they were all like giggling the boys. And she said, what's, you know, why are you laughing? And one kid said, well, this dude sounds like he's gay. And she kind of knew this was going to happen, that they were going to say this. And so she said, she said, you know, I want you to know though, that 80% of boys feel this way about their friends. And sometimes, you know, say these things, a lot of boys say these things. And they were all like, wait, really? She said, yes, this is normal. This is the way, this is the way most boys feel. And that just saying that then basically changed everything. The tenor of the room, the conversations the boys would have with each other, it like gave them this permission. Yes. And she said, then they were talking about how much they loved their friends. And they were, one of them said that he'd like broken up with a friend recently, which is sort of like a a romantic term to use. And it just gave them this permission to use this language and to express their feelings for their friends that they had been so shut off from prior to that. So that was so. That is really interesting. I just read a different article um, and it was basically saying that uh, similarly, like college age, this focused on boys, you know, college age boys tend to think like, okay, I'm uncomfortable with like sexual harassment and sexual assault, but other college age boys are okay with it, which makes them reluctant to speak up, to say something. And so when researchers share like the actual stats, like, dude, no, you are not in the minority. This is actually a much more common position. Same thing um, that college students 
tends to overestimate the amount that other college students are like okay with um, excessive drinking and all the partying. And like, you are not the only one feeling this way. So parents, a huge takeaway is when you can normalize for your boys that you're not the only one. There are a lot of others out there that frees them up because we all have this concern, like, am I the only one? And especially in adolescence, it is social suicide to be the only one. So no wonder they go along with what they perceive the pack to be thinking. That is so, so powerful. And I think we should be doing more, more of that yeah. <laughs> about everything. Right. And I know it can also help too, to talk about your own experiences with something. Um, mm. You know, I remember with my daughter, um, she was suffering from a lot of social anxiety at one point, and, and she really felt like she was the only one who has this. And I was telling her, oh, I, I am socially anxious too. And, you know, here's when it first started and here's what I do about it. And she was like, mom, it was so helpful to know that you have this too. I thought I was the only one. So like Aww. anything that's stigmatized, really, I feel like the more, yeah, the more we can normalize it and say, no, you are not alone. This is perfectly normal. It's just so helpful. When you um, published your newsletter, there's such great info in that. And I know you talked to a lot of really smart people. You've gotten some great comments. Has this uh, shifted, uh, led to any new conversations with your son about friendship? Oh, yes. So I, I had him read the newsletter. I had asked permission to share his story in the newsletter, and then he knew it was coming out. And I said, if you want to read it, you can read it. And it was interesting. He read it and he said, this is really good. And he said, and I really don't know how to feel about this. He said, but you know, you talk about how this lack of connection and my inability to sort of open up with my friends is, it's like a sacrifice that there's a cost to it. And he said, but I don't know, it doesn't really make me sad. It's just the way it is. And I'm okay with it. And I was like, Ooh, and he said, you know, and he said something like, if I have something I really need to share, I can share it with you, which again, it's nice to hear, but he's not going to want to do that forever. You know, I had such mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, I guess it's good that he's not bothered by this in some ways, but on the other hand, it's like, does he not even know what life could be like if he had right a deep friendship that he could, you know, talk about anything with? And, you know, it's in moments like that, that I find myself, um, I have to remind myself he's not done yet right? Mm. So he, he can't see and maybe does not feel that now, but you know, maybe he will at some point and then he'll have that to reflect back on. He said he's 12. You know, what will he, what will his perception be at 15, at 25, at 45? I don't know. He's still going to grow through all of this. I do know um, I've had some of these conversations with my young adult and, and teenage males now, because like these stats scare me. And my 17-year-old, uh, he has a lot of friends and acquaintances. Like, I don't always know where that line is between acquaintance versus friend. And I've asked, you know, like, do you have people you can talk to? And for him, it sounds like, you know, you know that there are certain people that you can talk about certain things with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's okay. You know, I do that with my friends. I know that there are some people that it's okay to talk about this with. I know there are other people that I can talk more generally, but if it's specific, mm -mm, not going there. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that I shared in comment to your newsletter is I think that sometimes male friendships 
look different and express intimacy in ways that we as especially as moms, female teachers, we don't always see. Like there is a lot of power in sitting quietly with someone when they're going through something. Sometimes you don't need words. And that can be so hard because that might mean that like the two boys sitting on the couch playing Minecraft together separately where it looks like they're not interacting, like there might be something deep going on there, but we can't see it. Yeah. That is such a good point. And I, I really appreciated that comment. Um, yeah, there are so many little things. I mean, I was thinking about your comment last night. I'm watching Ted Lasso with my son. Oh, and, oh fantastic. That has been such a wonderful opportunity for conversations like the, the diamond dogs where they all get together and talk about their feelings. And I'm like, that's boys group. Like that's what yeah. I was writing about in my newsletter. Um, but we were just sitting there watching and we were sharing a blanket and like kind of cuddling together. Yep. And I was just thinking like, well, we're not talking right now, but this is, this is intimate. You know, there's something yeah. happening here that like, I need to remember that there, there are all sorts of ways that we can be intimate with our friends and our loved ones that don't involve, you know, talking about everything that's going on in your life. So that for was my really book, I interviewed um, Lydia Dunworth and mm. she had, she had written this great piece, which is how I found her. You know, she had literally gone off and was studying friendship and watched this group of monkeys and how they interact with each other and their relationships and how they build their bonds through grooming and through being with one another. Clearly, there are many differences between humans and monkeys, and yet there are a lot of similarities. And she wrote about how she came home and she saw her, I think he was 17 year old son on the couch playing video games with his friend. And she's like, oh my God, have you done nothing different while I'm here? Like go out, make some friends, do something. And she realized that some of this like side-by-side -side stuff is not so different from what I was seeing. And this is another way to build relationships. And that was eye-opening for me. And I'm like, huh, I need to keep that in mind. What looks like friendship to me Yes, that's friendship and it can have other forms. And that doesn't mean it's better, worse. It just is different. That's a really, really, really good point. Yeah. And I've been meaning to read her book. She has a book now in friendship too. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I... Um, there's what is it? Chimp Empire is on Netflix right now. And oh. we my husband and I had started watching that. Like, I just love nature documentaries. And frankly, I find they help me parent better because there's so much more like you see your kids do stupid things and you reflect back on like the, the baby lion cubs wrestling each other. I'm like, Oh, that's what those toddlers are doing over here. <laughs> There's this moment in chimp empire where, you know, social bonds are very important to their survival. And there's this one 14 year old male and he's an orphan and he's not really part of the group. And you see him go off in the forest and the narrator goes, 14 is a tough age for a young male chimpanzee. And I thought, same humans, <laughs> same. That's and especially amazing. when they don't have, you know, the tribe, they don't have the people to have their back. And I don't know, you know, maybe it for some parents and some families, maybe it is also helpful to watch shows like that together and have those discussions. There are so many opportunities. Ted Lasso. Oh my goodness. So much to talk about there. So much to talk about. Yeah. It's been amazing. I mean, and also just you know, there's a lot of mature content in that 
show. Um, but I really actually appreciate the opportunity to sort of pause and, you know, explain like, like what's a vibrator or what's a tampon? Like these were things that came up, you know, and we, we paused and we talked about it and, and I was grateful for those opportunities. Right. Cause I'd it's rather a lot be- easier than just randomly bringing up, yes. Hey, do you know what a tampon is? <laughs> it's so much easier. Right. <laughs> And I mean, I'd rather that he learn about what these things are from me than like, God knows what he's going to hear about what a vibrator is from his friends, right? They're probably not going to get it quite right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it's been really, it's been really wonderful. And then, yeah, all the, just a lot of conversations about mental health, like we talked yes. about panic attacks and anxiety and, oh, it's just, and therapy. It's just been really just like a treasure trove. I'm a huge advocate for using TV shows and movies and songs and all of that to talk to our kids. Yes, absolutely. And even if not, especially when those shows or movies are showing things that we don't like that are against our values, for instance, like pause it and say, well, what do you like? What do you think about what just happened there? You know, that guy was really not treating her very well or whatever it is. I I just feel like we sometimes think we should shield our kids from seeing bad things or hearing about bad things. But honestly, like kids can handle so much and it's such an opportunity to have conversations about our values. Pro tip though. You have to be subtle about this a little bit, because if you sit your kid down and then the thing happens and then you pause and look at them and say, let's have a conversation. They are never going to watch TV with you again. I mean, point. I, I shouldn't say never. They may, but you can very quickly shut it down by like only sitting down with them when you want to turn it into a teaching lesson. It has to be a lot more um, organic than that. Yes. Yeah. Good point. I'm sure that's true as kids get older, like later into adolescence, even yeah. more so, right? Yeah. Trust me. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll be careful. <laughs> Your book came out in 2021. Um, uh, I know that you, you know, you wrote it before 2021 because there's always that lag in between. You've been writing your newsletter since then. Um, is there anything if your book were to come out tomorrow or in six months, is there anything that you think you would change or add or clarify today? I mean, there are certainly things that now I kind of wish I'd spent more time on like mental health. I, you know, I didn't talk a lot about what are the risk factors for, you know, anxiety and depression and how do we, how do we, how can we as parents help to, you know, mitigate those and whatnot. And just, there's a lot more to say on that and sort of the crisis of mental health and in adolescence. And I mean, I certainly think that I would probably just want to emphasize more that there is no one right way to do anything in parenting, that every child is different. Every parent is different. Every family, every situation is different. And so, you know, it's really hard writing a like, quote unquote, like prescriptive parenting book because it can seem like you're saying, here's the, here's the way that you should do this. And the only way that you should do this. Right. And I think that that's not healthy. I think there's so much parental burnout right now. And so I, you know, I did try try to emphasize that in the book, but I feel like I could have done even more, right? Of saying, look, <laughs> here's one way to do it that research, you know, suggests can be constructive. But my goodness, there are certainly other ways. You should trust your instincts as well. You know, you know your kids. You know, you know how they're going to react to things. You know what they respond best to. So I think we really have to also trust our own instincts in parenting because we know a lot more than we maybe realize we do. I love that trust your instincts. You know, your kid better than I do better than Melinda does. You know, kid one is different than kid two. They're being raised in the same house by the same parents. They have different needs. 
Melinda, yes. thank you so much for joining us today. Um, your book again is How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, Science-Based Strategies for Better Parenting from Tots to Teens. Your newsletter is Is My Kid the Asshole? I will have those links in uh, the show notes. Is there anything else that you're working on that we should highlight? Well, I can't really talk about it, but I am start starting work on another book, which I'm very excited about Yay! that it hasn't like, been announced yet. Another parenting book. So uh, 2025, like summer 2025, we can look out for that. <laughs> but we will have you on again when it comes out. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. How to raise kids who aren't assholes. We are all working on that. We're all going to find our own unique path. And you know what? I trust that we are raising decent, non-assholy humans. 100%. <laughs> we hope you have found this conversation valuable. And if you did, please share it with a friend. Again, thank you for being our listeners and thank you for supporting our sponsors. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of BuildingBoys.net. And I'm Janet Allison of BoysAlive.com. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.